This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to our show, Lawyer to Lawyer. And uh, in case you haven't been listening to the last couple of shows, we have changed our name. Yes, this is this is the show previously known as Coast to Coast, uh, but uh, to better reflect our 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 extension beyond the coasts, we're now calling the program Lawyer to Lawyer. And uh, I'm Bob Ambrogi, and I'm in Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from Southern California, and we thankfully can pronounce our name, unlike the uh, halftime show for the Super Bowl this past Sunday. Um, I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Bob, I know you write at least four. (laughs) I write a blog called Law Sites, another blog called Media Law. Uh, Well, last week here in Boston, uh, a guerrilla marketing stunt Spearheaded by Turner Broadcasting, went horribly awry, resulting in uh, in in relative chaos within the city of Boston. Well, two artists, Peter Berdovsky and Sean Stevens from the Boston area, were hired by Interference, which is a New York marketing company, which might explain things. Um, hired by Turner Broadcasting System, a unit of Time Warner, the two men put up ten light-up boxes uh, depicting a cartoon character. And those boxes were placed all over the city of Boston, and they were trying to promote a cartoon and an upcoming movie. The boxes have been in place for two to three weeks, not only in Boston, but also in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Atlanta, Seattle, Portland, Austin, San Francisco, and Philadelphia, surprisingly without the same reaction in Boston. Well, that's right. Uh, the uh, placing of the boxes uh, went uh, pretty much uneventful in the other cities, but in Boston, after receiving calls from all over the city reporting the electronic devices, including uh, their location under bridges and at train stations, city officials took action, uh, as they would in any report of a suspicious device, after the electronic devices were ruled harmless and found to be a a marketing stunt. Mayor Tom Menino addressed the media. Menino said, quote, It is outrageous in a post-911 world that a company would use this type of marketing scheme. I am prepared to take any and all legal action against Turner Broadcasting and its affiliates for any and all expenses incurred during the response to today's incidents. Well, last year, just so that you know the East Coast doesn't feel left out, we had a similar problem here on the West Coast. Paramount Pictures teamed up with the Los Angeles Times to promote their new movie, Mission Impossible 3. Paramount, apparently with the L.A. Times position, uh, permission, hooked up a device on the news racks to play a new movie theme for Mission Impossible 3 each time a patron opened the door to get a newspaper. After one of the devices was reported to the police as a possible explosive device because it was a red tube with wires coming out of it connected to the box, the Los Angeles bomb squad, uh, in pure Hollywood fashion, blew up the newspaper dispenser. Well, I, I hope they compensated the newspaper publishing company for the loss of that news rack. Uh, meanwhile, in Boston, the individuals were arrested and charged with a felony charge of placing a hoax device and a charge of disorderly conduct. Just this week, uh, new uh, Attorney General of Massachusetts Martha Coakley uh, and a number of uh, municipal officials from Boston and surrounding cities met with Turner and Interference and, and were able to reach a $2 million settlement uh, 
uh, in this case to be split up among among the, the various cities and to compensate them for the costs of this. Uh, but the criminal charges uh, remain pending against Berdovsky and Stevens. Well, we had a similar instance as soon as Los Angeles found out that the uh, Boston was going to make some money from this. The Los Angeles district attorney started waving the flag and claiming that they might start prosecuting Paramount Pictures and the Los Angeles Times for the same incident. Uh, I don't know whether they're doing it to get $2 million, but uh, certainly something that we'll be talking about today. And we're going to have several other questions regarding this hoax. Has guerrilla marketing gone too far? Who should pay for it? What sort of punishment should offenders who stir up this type of chaos face in a post-9-11 world? And do they deserve punishment at all? Joining us today to discuss some of these questions is Professor David Rossman. Since 1978, David Rossman has served as director of Boston University Law School's criminal law clinical programs. He teaches courses in criminal procedure, criminal trial practice, criminal trial advocacy, and issues in criminal justice. Professor Rossman has maintained an active criminal defense practice for nearly three decades. He's represented defendants at all state and federal court levels, including the U.S. Supreme Court. He's also served as an assistant district attorney in Middlesex County uh, here in Massachusetts, where he was responsible for grand jury investigations and prosecutions of white-collar crimes. He also works with the Innocence Project, which examines cases of persons who may have been wrongfully convicted of crimes. Welcome to our show today, Professor Rossman. Thank you, Bob. Well, let's start with, uh, I guess, the obvious question, which is uh, to what extent should these two uh, individuals be uh, prosecuted and punished? Well, obviously, the objectives in, in... fashioning punishment should have an eye on deterring people from doing this in the future, because I think there's a much greater interest in making sure this doesn't happen than in seeing that the right thing happens to these two people. And these two people were at the, the end of a chain of decision-making, and they were just the implements. They were hired by people who made decisions and who paid money to do things. And I think that um, you know, much more important than punishing these two um, would be making sure that the corporations and marketing companies that put this kind of behavior into operation think twice. And I'm not 100% sure that what happened here in Boston is going to send that message. Well, wouldn't the whole thing have been easily avoided if the marketing companies had simply contacted the police ahead of time and said, we're going to do this, and if you get any reports of these things, don't worry about it? Well, obviously. Or they could have put a little sticker on the back of the device that was clear to anyone who might have thought that it represented some potential danger, saying, you know, this is an advertising device, please call the advertising agency. So they, you know, with just a little bit of forethought, they could have avoided a lot of the panic um, that ensued. Um, but well, a terrorist didn't. can a terrorist can just as easily stick a sign on a on a potential bomb that says, "Oh, this is an advertisement." Yes, of just course, the but wrong then kind. What would make sense would be to put a telephone number on it, saying, "Come, you know, if you find this and you're concerned, please call this number," and and you know, it would have saved a lot of time and resolved a lot of the anxiety if the police had known immediately whom to go to when they found the first one of these things. 
Well, well, I don't know if you know the answer to this or not, but but did the agreement reach this week with the attorney general and and the others um, uh, absolve these the, the corporations of, of any further prosecution on, on a criminal charge? I um, I didn't hear or read that there was that kind of provision in the uh, agreement for Turner Broadcasting to give the city several million dollars to pay back the costs that were involved in having the police and the emergency services um, come out. But I can't imagine the lawyer who represented Turner Broadcasting not making that part of the deal. One would think so. Well, there is there is actually uh, some statements that have been made that, uh, that by making the payments, Turner and Interference resolved all the uh, civil and criminal claims against them. But um, I think that they let Berdowski and Stevens out to dry and perhaps making them the scapegoats. Well, you know, although they're charged with a felony that carries a maximum of uh, five years in prison, uh, the level of the court system where those charges were lodged um, is restricted to imposing a maximum sentence of no more than two and a half years. So in reality, even in theory, they don't face more than two and a half years in jail. And in practical terms, I think it's going to be relatively difficult for the prosecution in this case to be able to convince a jury that they intended to cause the kind of harm that the statute punishes. What's going to be easier is to convict them of the misdemeanor of disorderly conduct that they're charged with, and that only carries a six-month penalty. And as I understand it, they don't have a criminal record, and it would be very, very unusual for someone to go to jail for a first-time disorderly conduct conviction. So I suspect that with some good guidance from a defense attorney uh, cautioning them to um, accept responsibility and to disavow their somewhat childish um, responses in the immediate aftermath of their arraignment, that they could walk away from the criminal charges relatively unscathed. But what, go ahead. I wonder if you could summarize that a little bit or describe that for us a little bit. I, there, there was uh, certainly those of us in the, in the Boston area all saw the video of them after their arraignment with, with their lawyer standing behind them looking a little bit <laughs> perturbed, I think. Uh, can, you, can you explain for our listeners what happened? Well, as I understand it, when they had a news conference um, leaving the courthouse when they were arraigned, they gave nonsense answers to questions and seemed to be referring to some other cartoon character that's carried on the same network dealing with haircuts. And they were smirking and giggling and laughing as though this was a jolly old time. And that can't help them look contrite when they go to court later in the process of their case and try and convince a judge that they deserve some leniency. So I noticed in subsequent news accounts that um, these two fellows have been described by their representatives as understanding now the dimensions of what they did and being much more sorry for having caused the trouble that they caused. And I'd be very surprised if they uh, don't show up clean-shaven in a nice uh, coat and tie and keep their mouths shut in the future. 
in large part because they've hired some very competent representation, I assume, at some cost to themselves. And when you've invested that kind of money in a defense attorney, you have a stake in following his or her advice. Well, and then to add insult to injury, it was reported in the media subsequent to the arraignment that that uh, one of the individuals was, in fact, I guess, videotaping uh, as as uh, I'm not sure if it was law enforcement or, or safety officials uh, investigated one of these devices, um, and uh, you know they they have not won sympathy for themselves as defendants in in the media necessarily, although obviously a lot of people see them as as young and probably a little bit naive and and therefore uh, deserving of some sympathy. Well, isn't this something that, you know, it's a broader question for society that it takes this level of advertising to catch our interests? Have we become so insensitized to advertising that people have to come up with ideas like this? I mean, you take the Super Bowl ad on Sunday, that uh, the Snickers bar that's raised all kind of hackles on both sides of the fence. Uh, is it really an issue that we need to deal with society that we should have advertising generated at this level to get our attention? Well, I think, you know, if if this case was solely the conduct of two young men who did something stupid, I don't think it'd be newsworthy and it wouldn't be a social problem that we should be thinking about trying to solve because young people have done stupid things since time immemorial and we recognize it's a problem. We try to find ways to deal with it and it's nothing new. But what's, I think, particularly insidious about what happened here is that large corporate interests were behind it. In, in doing something in a deliberate way, you know, pre, in, a, in a premeditated fashion with a profit motive behind it. And that has much greater implications because if we don't create a, a disincentive for corporations to engage in this kind of behavior and if they think it's going to add to the bottom line, we can expect it to happen again. And I think uh, there's a common sense notion that you're much less forgiving when a large organization that presumably has access to sophisticated marketing and and legal advice engages in this kind of behavior as opposed to a young person who might be doing it for the thrill or you know just doing it to get some money because someone has told them that they get a nice payday if they do something stupid so you know, th- what happened in Boston I think is a much greater problem than simply people reacting to someone Playing a hoax, and and I'm much more worried about what it says in our reaction to Turner Broadcasting and the marketing company than what it says about how we treat the two young guys who got caught doing this. Because if Turner Broadcasting ends up making money on this cartoon, um, the cost that they paid to the city of Boston just gets folded in with all of the other advertising or promotional expenses, and they come out a net winner. Uh, and this is, to me, is a form of white-collar crime, and I think history has shown us that it's a much greater deterrent to white-collar crime if the people who are making the decisions have to realistically calculate the possibility of spending even a week in jail than if they think, well, the corporation might have to cough up a million bucks. You know. Well, the conventional wisdom is that, that, that for this $2 million, they've bought themselves many more millions of dollars worth worth of marketing for this cartoon and, and that uh, this was a steal for Turner Broadcasting, relatively speaking. 
so I mean, if they if they are walking away uh, without the threat of of criminal prosecution, uh, I mean, what kind of a deterrent is this to to this kind of behavior in the future? I don't think very much at all. That's why, um, although you know, the, you know, you might think that the underlying nature of what happened here was relatively trivial. I mean, no one in fact got hurt. The devices were harmless. Um, it, it, I think, would have been a better approach if the attorney general had made this the subject of a grand jury investigation and chosen to use the um, procedures that allow a grand jury in Massachusetts to exercise its subpoena power over people, I assume Turner's in Georgia, I don't really know, and the marketing agency in New York. And I think that that, that would have been a better way to send a message to the people who do this, that you are taking a substantial risk that you have to take very, very seriously if you're going to do this kind of behavior, rather than letting them get off by, by um, buying their way out of the trouble. And, and I don't think that that's going to make much of an impact on, on uh, other corporations or other marketing firms, or maybe even not even this corporation or this marketing firm. Because I think pretty clearly there was corporate criminal liability here. I haven't seen the agreement yet, but this agreement, I think, is with the AG and not with the city attorney. So doesn't that leave the city attorney an avenue to still go after them? As a, as a practical matter, um, when the attorney general decides to um, take over um, the investigation of a criminal case, it, it, it sort of preempts the local district attorney's office. And, and you know, as a, as a matter of statutory authority, the attorney general can, in fact, preempt uh, a district attorney. But if, if, if the DA decided that this was going to resolve all the um, state's interests in, in prosecution, I don't think, as a practical matter, the local district attorneys would go forward with it. Well, if you were the AG, wouldn't you also include in this resolution some type of future accounting for uh, continued profits as a consequence of uh, the cartoon show that was advertised so that they don't get rewarded for this type of behavior? Uh, You know, that might be very difficult. I don't know how you'd figure out how much extra benefit you got from pulling a stunt like this and the profits of the show or, you know, my understanding that of, of the accounting and the entertainment business is that it's, it's pretty non-existent. Close to, pretty close to impossible to trace out profits, even if you weren't trying to figure out, you know, incremental profits from a particular tactic. So, if you were concerned only with trying to get back money, what the attorney general got, I think, is is reasonable. It's just, I don't think enough to make an impression that will prevent other people from thinking doing something like this is perhaps worthwhile. Well, maybe the way to make an impression is to force them to take the program off the air. Uh, I'm not sure that that would be possible, consistent with the First Amendment. I mean, it's a you know it, it's a program that's that's um, protected, even if it's um, worthless artistically, and you can't prevent Turner Broadcasting from from showing what they want to show. Well, there is a balance between you know the First Amendment rights aren't absolute. There's a balance between prior restraint and inherent danger. And in a circumstance like this, where they've created a danger, they may have an argument. Well, you know, there's nobody here from from Turner to talk about this, but is there an argument over the question of whether they did create a danger? I mean, the law that they were uh, allegedly 
charged, uh, not allegedly, that they were, that, that these two have been charged under has to do with this uh, uh, infernal ca- device, infernal machine. Yeah, placing a, 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 an infernal machine that would cause a, a, a person to believe that the device is an infernal infernal machine. I mean, is there a is there a who to thunk it defense here that uh, you know who would have thought that placing these light boxes of cartoon characters around the city would be interpreted as an infernal machine? And certainly, the experience of these other cities is that that isn't what happened. I mean, you know, is is there a legitimate argument to be made that these uh, were not infernal machines? Well, of course, there's a legitimate argument. Legitimate in the sense that if the case went to trial, you'd be allowed to make that argument to a jury. But then you have to ask yourself, what else would the jury know about what happened? And one of the things, I mean, the jury wouldn't be confined to just looking at the device. The jury would be told uh, about what people who were trained to respond to these things, if they're real, thought when they responded and why they acted the way they did. And the jury would learn about the entire range of responses that trained professionals made seeing these devices. And it's not just looking at them in the abstract, but it's where they were placed and how they were placed that adds to the possibility. And, and so I, you know, I, I would not be surprised if a jury rejected fairly easily a defense that said, well, these things were not um, hoax devices or things that people would reasonably believe to, to be explosive devices. You know, the fact that that trained professionals responded the way they did is going to influence the jury in trying to decide whether a reasonable person would respond that way. Well, Professor Rossman, stay with us. We're going to take a short break and continue this discussion in about uh, 60 seconds. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at mayitpleasethecourt.com, likewise Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Did you know that Legal Talk Network shows are also available as CLE? Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's CLECenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit for your continuing legal education. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. 
Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. And Bob, before I hand it over to you, did you catch during the break that we're now available as continuing legal education credit on Law.com site? I had read about that. That's great to hear. And, and this is Bob Ambrogi, and we're talking about the uh, the uh, the Aqua Teen Hunger Force uh, Boston hoax, the uh, light boxes that were placed around the city that, that caused quite an uproar. And we're speaking with law professor David Rossman from Boston University. And Professor Rossman, I, I wanted to ask about the First Amendment here. What about the argument that, that these guys were artists and that they created art and they put art up? Uh, is there a First Amendment defense here as opposed to the First Amendment issue we were just talking about a few minutes ago with regard to Turner Broadcasting? Well, yes, they could raise a First Amendment um, argument, but it's very much like that you know, old cliche of shouting fire in a crowded theater. Um, that the crimes that they are charged with, I think, are have been construed or written, as the case may be, narrowly enough so that the prosecution would have to prove that they didn't have um, an intent to have an artistic expression and that they didn't um, ignore um, a clear risk of creating public alarm. So that, for example, in the in the hoax device statute their intent has to be to cause anxiety, unrest, fear, or personal discomfort by um, placing one of these hoax devices um, in an in a area where someone's going to find it. And Is that a subjective standard? I mean, I, I, you know, I for one, uh, had no idea what the Aqua Teen Hunger Force was until last week, but uh, many people would have looked at those boxes and said, oh yeah, I know what that is, and I understand. I mean, it, does, does the does the perception of of the art uh, play a role in this? It does only in the implementation of this element of intent. The question under that statute would be, you know, what did they actually intend to do? And because it's a what we lawyers would call a specific intent crime, the prosecution would have to prove that they actually subjectively desired to have their behavior end up causing uh, you know, um, anxiety or discomfort, as opposed to perhaps their desire to uh, simply get publicity for the cartoon or to um, you know, have a little performance art installation. And that's why it would have been much more difficult had, well, it might be much more difficult for the prosecution to get a conviction under this statute, the felony statute, than under the disorderly conduct misdemeanor statute, because that's not a specific intent statute, and it, it's going to be a much easier fit, because under that statute they can punish uh, behavior that recklessly creates a risk of public alarm without serving um, a legitimate interest of the actor. and. I think it's much easier to show that they were reckless and failed to take into account the risk of public alarm, especially because of the way that they placed the items. 
mean, as I understand it, they put these items underneath bridges and attached it with duct tape. And if all they wanted to do was to get publicity, they wouldn't have put it there. Well, they certainly got the attention that they were looking for. And there's some legitimate artwork that I've seen that causes me anxiety and discomfort. So it's pretty much of a subjective standard. The question that I guess comes to mind at this point is, are we able to, uh, in a post-9-11 world, are we really able to have any type of artwork or advertising that's outside of the accepted norms? Are we you know, entering a Norwellian society? Well, I, I think we are now moving away from the reality of what happened in Boston, which is perfectly fine for purposes of discussion. But I think we should remember that what we were talking about here was, at best, um, you know, expression that had a commercial purpose. Yes, it was expression, but it was um, expression designed to um, sell a product. And, and, and uh, I think that the Supreme Court gives the state a little bit more leeway in regulating advertising than it does in regulating um, First Amendment activity that is not designed to sell a product. And you know, maybe um, people will start changing the rules with respect to you know, public performances that cause anxiety that um, are like guerrilla street theater where perhaps somebody trying to reenact some kind of, of um, quasi-terrorist action as a, as a, a piece of street theater. Um, and that's going to be a difficult situation for the courts because there you're going to have a situation that's stripped of this um, um, you know, economic motivation and, and it'll be m- much closer to pure expression. We're about out of time, and I, I'm wondering if, if uh, before we wrap up, if you could tell us, uh, I mean, you've talked about the courts, but, but maybe you can talk about what, what the response should be. Should it be in the courts? Should there be a legislative response? Um, and and uh, give us your final thoughts on that, and then, and then let us know, uh, if, you'd, if you'd like to, how our listeners can find out more about uh, your work and, and uh, your, the programs at Boston University. Sure. Well, I'm always generally very skeptical of legislation that um, is enacted in response to a particular incident because it's usually enacted without much forethought and it might be narrowly tailored to what just happened, but there's a saying about about the military and that is you always want to be careful about fighting the last war. And so I don't think that we need new legislation. I think that what we need are are um, more thoughtful decisions by the police and by the people who make decisions to charge individuals with a crime about how to use the existing laws, like, for example, the disorderly conduct statute in Massachusetts, and like picking targets that might get at the real decision makers as a way of, of dealing with this problem. And if it recurs, if some other company and marketing agency in the future does something similar, um, I hope that whoever has control over the grand jury process uses it to begin a real serious criminal investigation into the corporate higher-ups. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, your insights have been helpful, and, and it's been a pleasure for us to talk to you. 
you're quite welcome. And uh, how can our listeners find out more about uh, you, or how, or how can they contact you? If sure. Not, uh, well, email, I think, would be certainly the best way. It's drossman, D-R-O-S-S-M-A-N, at V-U dot E-D-U. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us. It's It's been great talking to you. And, thank you. And Craig, uh, you and I will talk again next week on Lawyer to Lawyer. Sounds good, Bob. Take care. So long. See you. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and Jake Craig Williams. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.